0: Org. Enjoy. Hi, I'm sitting with my colleague Laurence Dadirac, um, and today we're meeting to discuss her latest book uh, Animals, Museum Culture and Children's Literature in 19th Century Britain Curious Beasties, published with Palgrave Macmillan in 2021. Um, Laurence Talirac is my colleague at the University of Toulouse, Jean Jaurès, and we've been working lately on several courses on children's literature. Um, Laurence, hi. Hi. How did you come to write about museums and children's literature in the 19th century? And perhaps also what do you mean by museum
1: culture and what kind of museums are we talking about? Um. I've been working for a long time with natural history museums and and medical museums, both as an academic and a children's writer. And while I reflected on or, or examined their collections, I was often intrigued by how they presented their natural history collections to juvenile audiences. I mean, here today. And then I came to think that it would be interesting to see whether anything had been written on 19th century displays in natural history museums. And so because I had worked um, in a previous monograph on how science was popularized in 19th century children's books, I decided to focus on animals, trying to see how these animal specimens, and so um, natural history collections and natural history museums were presented to children and how they contributed to the shaping of children's knowledge and this in the long 19th century. Um, Now, regarding the, the term museum culture, Uh, You're very right. This may need an an explanation. I've used Barbara Black's definition of the museum uh, and she sees it either as institution, as image or as practice, which I find interesting and and which gives this broad definition of the museum. Uh, Now, generally speaking, the places I defined in the book as museums were all the venues driven by collecting enterprises. So this included zoos, um, this included menageries of all sorts. So all kinds of places which exhibited animals and which invited audiences to look at them.
0: It seems to me that animals uh, prevail in children's literature in all children's literature. And even before the advent of children's literature, uh, children were read fables which featured many animals. Um, how is your book um, Specific or original, then? What, what makes it uh, mm. different?
1: Mm. Oh, this is very true. Um, animals have always been given a, a prominent place in children's literature and, and in books for children uh, most generally, uh, especially since the advent of children's literature. But, but I found that children's literature scholarship did not often examine the curious ones. And so, the, the kind of animals I looked for in the first place when I started this project were the animals which were at the time the object of scientific discourse or the object of scientific research. And, and what I tried to examine was whether the discourses or sometimes the controversies that were prompted by these newly discovered, newly exhibited creatures found their way into children's literature. And this, especially because many of the creatures then discovered or brought back to Britain increasingly confirmed evolutionary theory. And I knew that some of the writers, the children's writers I'd already worked on, actually denounced evolutionary theory. And so in this study, I've tried to bring together many different kinds of newly exhibited animals. So these could be the animals that were brought to Britain. Remember, this is an era of imperial expansion. Uh, They could be the creatures that were dug out from the past, creatures that were hard to define, uh, creatures that have become extinct, all creatures, the aspect of which had to be imagined, as in the case of extinct creatures that were reconstructed and then exhibited. And so I hope this is what makes this contribution to children's literature original. Thanks. Um,
0: Children's literature can take many forms. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit
1: more about the texts you chose, you selected? Um, So the book has five chapters, and, and I follow a generally chronological structure. I start with uh, Georgian children's literature, and I briefly mentioned fable literature. I, I briefly mentioned John Gay's fables, for example, they were published at the end at the beginning of the, the 18th century. Uh, but then I, I look at the history of Little Goody Two Shoes, I look at Sarah Trimmer's Fabulous Histories, uh, Anna Letitia Barbo's Evenings at Home, uh, and some of the books published by John Harris, uh, which was um, Newbery's successor. Um, and, and then in, so that's for the first chapter, And then in in chapter two, I look at Victorian texts. Um, And I particularly worked on a guidebook that was aimed at children, uh, which uh, was published a year after the opening of the London Zoological Gardens in 1828. So this was published in 29. And it's James Bishop's Henry and Emma's visit to, to the zoological gardens in the Regent's Park. And this I compared with popular science works published around the same period. Um, um, I worked on Jane Loudon's, for example, Young Naturalist Journey. I also looked at ABC books uh, to see what kind of animals were used to teach children how to read and and whether they actually were uh, curious animals. And I also focus on two mid-Victorian children's periodicals, uh, Good Words for the Young and Aunt Julie's Magazine, which were both launched in the 1860s. Now, so that's for chapter two, chapters two and three. In chapter four, I um, look at Victorian nonsense and I um, studied a few works by Edward Lear and Lewis Carroll, um, such as the history of the seven families of uh, the lake people Popple by Lear, or um, the story of the four little children who went round the world, Lear as well. And of course, the, um, the two Alice books by, by Carroll, which are replete by, uh, with curious beasties. And I I closed the study with a chapter on on late Victorian or Edwardian fantasies. Um, It's a chapter in which I I do use, again, popular science works aimed at children, uh, such as um, John Brow's The Fairy Tales of Science, that was published in 1859. But then I look at older fantasies, such as Tom Hood's um, From Nowhere to the North Pole, published in 1875. And I close with quite a few of Edith Nesbitt's fantasies, Um, uh, such as the Enchanted Castle, the Magic City, and the Samoyed Trilogy, the Five Children and It, the Phoenix and the Carpet, and the Story of the Amulet. That's about it.
0: Thanks. You just mentioned again the subtitle of your book, Curious Beasties. So what are these beasties exactly, and why your interest in unfamiliar animals?
1: Um, Well basically these curious beasties are all the creatures that were hunted, um, collected, studied, sold, um, exchanged or exhibited in the long 19th century, and which for many of them were seen as emblems of Britain's imperial and capitalist systems. Uh, Basically the book spans the period from the middle of the 18th century to the end of the Edwardian period, which is not only a time when museums proliferated in Britain, but also a period during which the number of animal species known to science rose dramatically. So there was something like 300 animals known to science at the beginning of the 18th century. And by the turn of the 20th century, they discovered something like over a thousand animals every year. And, and it's in at the end of the 18th century, in the 1790s, that the first Australian enigmas um, such as platypuses, koalas, wombats, or echidnas, arrived in Britain, and and these were described in the first decade of the 19th century. And and so my interest in these strange, unknown, or odd creatures is really linked to their arrival or discovery in Britain. One of your previous
0: books um, dealt with fairy tales and natural history. Um, What is the relationship Uh, between the world of fairy tales and that of Victorian natural history, uh, which made you want to investigate further.
1: Oh, indeed, yes. Um, Well, many, many of my reflections in this book stem from fairy tales, natural history and Victorian culture, in which I had worked on Charles Kingsley's The Water Babies, which um, actually features a naturalist and a collector of curious creatures, the water babies. Uh, and and which deals with evolutionary theory. Um, Kingsley, who is both a children's writer and a popularizer of science, does use the marvelous to talk about contemporary science and to present it to juvenile audiences. And although water babies are entirely fictional, they made me think about the other wonderful creatures that could be found in 19th century children's literature and which were in fact, at the same time examined by naturalists. So creatures, which were both likely to entertain and instruct, to stimulate wonder, whilst remaining thoroughly anchored in reality. And that's what I find interesting.
0: What kind of strange creatures did you find in Victorian fantasies?
1: Oh, you mean fantastic ones? That's right. I could mention quite a few. Um, Lewis Carroll's Jabberwock is a case in point, uh, and many of his curious beasties are an obvious choice as well. Uh, I could I could mention the toves, you know the series of badger. That's a mix between lizards and corkscrews. Uh, Borogoves, an extinct kind of wing wingless parrot, uh, something that um, like a live mop. Uh, I really like Edward Lee's Um In Tom Woods' fantasy, you, you find uh, batten keys, the camelobras, uh, and of course Edith Nesbit's Samiad, this prehistoric sand fairy. There's actually a very long list of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Why do you believe these creatures were inspired by their author's contemporary reality then?
1: Uh, for the two writers I focused on in the fourth chapter, so Edward Lear and Lewis Carroll, it tends to reason. Both uh, Lear and Carroll were linked to developments in natural history. Um, Lear was first and foremost a zoological illustrator. He was, um, he was apprenticed to Prido. Selby in the first place, uh, when Selby published his illustrations of British ornithology. Uh, Then he made drawings of parrots that were kept at the London Zoo for his illustrations of the family of parrots, published in 1832. Uh, And then he was hired by Lord Stanley, who was the future um, 13th Earl of Derby, who invited him to his estate at Knowsley Park, which was um, um, near Liverpool, to make a catalogue of his menagerie. And so Lear stayed there for five years between 1832 and 1837. And uh, Stanley's menagerie comprised of many, many animals. There were something like 300 mammals, over 300 mammals, over a 1,000 birds. And he had a, a, a museum attached to the menagerie, which comprised something like 25,000 specimens. And so his limericks, published in a book of nonsense, uh, were written for Lord Stanley's children, and thus, his representation of children's engagement with exotic creatures in his um, limerys, limericks, such as when 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 the characters ride zebras, when they purchase exotic species, uh, when the children see animals performing feats—all of these—they were obviously informed by by his um, um, environment. As for as for Carol, Carol was um, very close to Henry Ackland who is the, um, the man who was behind the project of the, the making of the Oxford Natural History Museum. And as a, as a photographer, so as um, uh, uh, Charles Lut- uh, Dodgson, he took photographs of some of the specimens that were actually owned by Ackland and which, was, which were transferred from Christchurch to, to this newly opened Natural History Museum. Um, the dodo he featured in in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was undoubtedly inspired by the dodo specimen at Oxford as well, and um, and and yeah, and many of the animals which appear in the fantasies evoke contemporary scientific discourse, discourses, and and I I believe as well that the influence of Tenniel is significant as an illustrator because Tenniel was um, chosen by Carroll because he knew about his scientific accuracy when drawing animals, and and Tenniel agreed to, uh, to to do the job because he knew that this would be an opportunity for him to create more animal drawings. Um. So the links in, in both cases, the links with the author's contemporary reality are quite obvious. I see.
0: You mentioned Lear and Carol, especially Lear, whose career as an artist was indissociable from the contemporary scientific context. Uh, but what about women's writers whose links with the scientific world were more limited?
1: Mm, yes. Yes. Um, many of the women writers I mentioned had limited access to scientific institutions, uh, whether we're talking about universities or scientific societies. And, and What is interesting is that these women used children's literature as a way not simply to popularize science or to mediate scientific knowledge, but also to practice science and, and not just as a pastime or not simply as, as amateur. Now, this would be too long to develop here, but, but as I explain in the book, Um, The case of Margaret Getty, who had a passion for marine biology, is quite telling. She was uh, uh, very close to scientists such as William Harvey, who became a professor of botany at Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, She communicated as well with George Johnstone. um, And so was her daughter, Horatia Catherine Frances Getty, who regularly wrote to George Busk, for, for example, who was a zoologist and who was in contact with George Orman, known as a botanist, and to whom our collections of hydroids were sent. And therefore, I, I studied several of their private letters. And, and in chapter three, um, uh, which deals with juvenile collectors, I tried to show how these children's writers particularly used the magazine to, to procure specimens from around the world. Um, and magazine was read as far as Tasmania and New Zealand. And, and I studied how the readers' correspondence section created a real hub for more or less amateur naturalists to exchange specimens and so to build up their collections. And, and Margaret Gatti's private collection is in fact quite impressive thanks to this network of collect- collectors.
0: While writing your book, did you encounter any particular challenges or difficulties? <laughs> you, mean,
1: you mean in addition to the pandemic and the closing of borders? Yes. Well, I would say that many of the creatures I was first expecting to find never appeared where or when I expected them to appear, or they were represented, They were not represented as I expected them to be represented. Uh, for example, many of them were described as vermin or pests um, and, and were not really beasties. There was absolutely no form of fondness or endearment for them, which, which I found at the beginning quite surprising. If you believe that
0: some of the children's writers you mentioned uh, played a part in familiarising children with these less familiar animals, did their writings simply popularise scientific knowledge then?
1: Um, Yes and no, or or not only. Um, Some of the authors and texts I analysed also shows that exhibiting live animals in environments that were not their native environments or, or in cages was an issue that they needed to address. Um, And they also suggested that children's literature could play a role in preserving some of the species that were then being hunted and killed in high numbers. Um, And as as well in teaching children how to become collectors without damaging too much the natural world. And I think that's one of the many reasons why it's still important today to to study children's literature, because it can tell us so much about how environmental consciousness actually evolved and how texts for children sowed the seeds of conservation.
0: So now that your book is out, uh, do you have a new book project or
1: new research project in mind related to children's literature? Uh, Several, in fact, but but they're still in the very early stages. Um, I guess I'll get a clearer idea in a few months' time, but perhaps we could write a book together. Catherine, what do you think? I would be delighted. Thanks, Laurence. Thank you.